Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct the Podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Django Unchained is the film we saw this week. Levi, in 30 seconds or less, give me your review of Django Unchained. This is another fantastic Quentin Tarantino movie. I feel like we cheat a little bit by choosing Tarantino because there's not yeah. a bad one in the bunch. Death Proof right. is as close as they come, and even that's a, a good movie despite being slow. Uh-huh. Um, this is fantastic, and I'm looking forward to talking with you about it. I listened to the uh, Jim and Aaron covered it in one of their commission casts. Um, yeah. So I'm curious. I'm excited to kind of talk a little bit more about the movie in the context of Tarantino um, and to discuss basically just trash on them. I think we should also just say that they were wrong <laughs> and we'll just junk on them. Yeah. So what did you think, man? <laughs> I thought that, so like I said uh, in last podcast, um, I really feel like when Tarantino has exhibited three phases of his career, he's got the LA crime story phase. He's got the grindhouse phase and then he goes into his historical fiction phase. Um, and that historical fiction phase starts with Inglorious Bastards, goes into Django Unchained, and then uh, uh, presumably continues through The Hateful Eight. Um, and I tried to decide whether or not this film is better than Inglorious Bastards, because I just love Inglorious Bastards. But I think from a filmmaking standpoint, this is. Tarantino's opus. This Django Unchained exhibits so much personal growth and exhibition of uh, honed skill that I think that it eclipses Inglorious Bastards from a filmmaking standpoint. And it, it's just really awesome, I think, uh, Levi. The opportunity that we've given ourselves through this podcast to watch all of his films in sequence. And see that kind of personal growth throughout uh, throughout his movies. Because Reservoir Dogs is a tour de force. Pulp Fiction is a tour de force. But when we get up to Django Unchained, it is just Tarantino doing whatever the hell he wants. And everybody is 100% on board with it. Um, yeah. And it really made me excited for Hateful Eight coming up soon. I really agree that I think this is... Tarantino showing the most control of any of his films. He uses a lot of the elements that he's really popular for, but it's not, I agree that it's more refined than Inglorious Bastards. Inglorious Bastards had a lot of pieces thrown in and it was a really great mishmash. And I think he's excellent at that. But one thing like I noted when I was watching it was that most of the music is fairly Western like fairly similar to a Western style film would have. And he takes it from different places, but I think it fits the setting generally well overall. And (laughs) whereas, you know, I think the Inglorious Bastards took music from a lot of different sources and Kill Bill really went above and beyond in terms of where it was sampling its music from. But this one, most of the music really felt like it fit the setting. Yeah, he he does a masterful job with the music in this film, especially because he's forced to get, you know, he kind of forces himself to get away from the diegetic music that that was popular throughout his entire canon up to this point. 
there is like one scene of diegetic or practical music in this entire um, movie, and it's during the um, during the negotiation when uh, the lady is playing Beethoven on the harp, <laughs> and uh, and Schultz gets up and asks her politely to stop, and then re- removes her hands from the harp. Other than that, and other than you know Samuel Jackson singing a tune um, as as they walk into the house. All of the music has to, it's required. It has to be, you know, actual cinematic music that is not being played practically in the scene, um, which is which is Tarantino's forte. And he does he does a, just a great job with it. And the the music is all over the place. You have hip hop tracks. You have folk tunes. You have, uh, you know, Johnny Cash is thrown in there. Like there's just so many great uh, great uses of music throughout the film. And it pays homage to the westerns of the seventies because they did very similar things. You know, uh, I don't know if you're uh, familiar with the, the Butch Cassidy, and, Butch Cassidy, and the Sundance Kid, but in that film, there's this weird montage to raindrops keep falling on my head. <laughs> yeah, and for some reason, it randomly wor- it works, but it's like weird. And that's what I kept thinking of when when all these musical cues uh, kept coming up throughout the movie. Yeah, he's got such good taste. He's on Nerdist this past week in an interview. Oh. And one of the questions they asked him was, what is the one song you wish you had gotten for a film that you weren't able to get? And he really wanted My Sharona for the Rape of Ving Rhames in, <laughs> wow. uh, in Pulp Fiction. He said, uh-huh. isn't it just the most like rapey song like for, for anything wow. i was just i was in stitches because i can picture it i can see what he's saying in trying to you I, know I think just that the, scene is weird enough but like yeah and it's screwed up but he's his ability to kind of take the beats of a song and just mm-hmm. picture a scene and then to make that unfold is really amazing and so yeah, I was really I, I th- that's the first thing I always gravitate towards when watching these things is just kind of keeping an eye on the music and yeah. how it fits in and Jim Croce. How many oh, Jim Croce? I can't believe he fit him in. I I know me too that song. Well, I I'm actually a big Jim Croce fan, which is a little ridiculous, but like cuz my dad had a bunch of Jim Croce records when I was a kid. But yeah, I've got a name. Like he turned that into a badass song. <laughs> like that song is about like it's it's you know it's about you know a vagabond on the road and and like he turned it into like this badass like I'm fucking Django and I got a name motherfucker <laughs> and, I'm, I'm gonna, and I'm gonna fucking light up the goddamn West with my pistol. It's like it's fucking amazing how he's able to to you know uh, to 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 do that and I think that that it it shows that growth too. I think that music shows his use of music shows growth because whereas in his earlier films, he was using music as a set piece to, or a set dressing to kind of make the scene fleshed out from a almost, almost set decoration standpoint because of that use of diegetic music throughout, throughout his canon. In this one, it's all about cinematic, cinematic, uh, you know, set pieces and using the music to, to, uh, drive character development or to let you know how you're supposed to feel throughout each scene. It's, it's really good, man. I, I, I love this movie. Um, and while I say that, I think that from a filmmaking standpoint, it's better than Inglorious Bastards. I do think that Inglorious Bastards is a little more entertaining. <laughs> yeah. Inglorious Bastards is, 
And this one, I think there is a lot of moments that are difficult to watch. The the Mandingo fight and when oh, they yeah. feed the guy to the the dogs. Yep. It's the first time in a Tarantino movie where I really it you have to kind of pause and you know, you realize that the while the subject, you know, while it's handled kind of comically and somewhere between a western and a, a black black exploitation film Mm-hmm. That it is a serious subject, and that the acts of violence you're seeing are they are ba- they are based in a reality that existed. Yeah, I mean, I think the I, I actually read an article about Mandingo fights and how they probably weren't very prevalent, and that was probably something that Tarantino made up. But what it does is that it shows it shows the ownership that people had over people. And that you could force them to do whatever you wanted because they were counted as property instead of human beings. They didn't. They didn't have constitutional rights. They weren't. They weren't true Americans. And I think that it's really important from this film standpoint. Um, I, I saw an interview with Quentin Tarantino where he was talking about, you know, we have two great holocausts in the United States, and one holocaust is the. Holocaust of the Native Americans when we went and cleaned out the West and then settled on their land. And he said that that has been, you know, addressed in film, but the other Holocaust is slavery and people don't, you know, it's, it's a subject that even today, I mean, we know the racially charged times that we live in today, it, people just don't want to accept the fact or they don't want to, uh, you know, I'm not trying to get uber political here, but I think it really is important to understand that your great great grandfather could have been a slave owner, and you know in 2015 that that's a possibility. Like, um, and and what slavery actually means? Like, you know, uh, what 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 are the tenets of actually owning people? And I think that uh, I think that it's a I think that it's you know noble of of Tarantino to to move forward and want to have that message throughout this film, and he has to do it through uncomfortable scenes because if you're not uncomfortable then we're not talking about slavery. Slavery's fucking uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, it, it has to be uncomfortable. Um, and I think that it's important for us to to shine the mirror up and, and take a look at our past. Um, and I, and I'm, I'm glad Tarantino did it. I was kind of surprised in some of the, the background um, media around the film that so many people took offense to tarantino making a a movie about slavery yeah it seems for a guy who's made increasingly uh uh, what's the 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 explosive film for lack of a better term you know kind of bombastic that they that some have really placed a lot of emphasis on is on a discussion about is he allowed to as a white man to have this conversation through film yeah. about slavery, uh-huh. about the N word. Um, and even one of the things that I think, and I don't know that I want to take a deep dive into Kurt, you know, kind of his uh, issue with the cops lately, but mm-hmm. he doesn't come across to me. And maybe this is just a white guy to white guy problem. So I'm not catching the full meaning of it, but yeah, you know, he's marching with people over the murder of, you know, young black men by the police force. And I think he, mm-hmm. he really cares. I don't think he does this stuff lightly. I think he's having fun, which maybe that's 
part of the issue, but it's, I don't know. I really appreciate that he didn't, cause he could just have made a Western and, you know, yeah, maybe that's what absolutely. hateful eight becomes, you know, it doesn't address a larger issue, but there's a lot going on in this despite its kind of goofy nature. Yeah, I mean, there is cartoonish. I mean, it's cartoonish in a lot of ways. Django Unchained, especially the violence, like the one that I the the scene that that comes to mind is at the end when he's uh, reinfiltrated Candyland, and he's like, "Say goodbye to uh, I can't remember what her name is, but uh, but Candy's sister." And then the slave says goodbye to her, and then she gets blown away by Django, and she like flies out of the room, like cartoony style. Um, there's like over the top cartoony violence throughout the movie, and maybe you know I could understand that you know taking a serious topic and wrapping it up in some Tarantinoisms and some over the top comic book violence could you know come across as as uh, as as insensitive, but you know I. I, I find it hard to, to blame the guy. I think that I, I think that he shows great respect for uh, for the time period and for the atrocities that uh, were committed for hundreds of years to found this country. And you know, I think that he also takes the language that he uses in Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown and um, transports it to the 1800s. And it's this weird dichotomy because it's uncomfortable to see this, these depictions of slavery, but it's also you know, this language, this divisive language is so much more comfortable because, you know, that's the past. We can leave it in the past. This whole idea of, you know, uh, you know, people, people use divisive language back then. They don't use it now. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think that Tarantino found kind of a place that he wanted to be and then was able to tell a story that he wanted to tell around something that is society that has that, you know, shines a mirror up to society, which I think is really important. Um, so, you know, whatever. It, it doesn't really matter whether or not he should have made the movie. He made the movie. The movie's good. So deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, if you want to see, I mean, 12 Years a Slave came out the year after this. And, you know, that was, you know, directed by Steve McQueen. It's much more straightforward. And I think it's kind of interesting to see these two movies as a little bit of a companion piece. Because on one side, you see the Tarantinoized version and, you know, Tarantino is there for entertainment value. He is trying to entertain you, whereas Steve McQueen's version is very much more educational, I think, in a lot more respects. And I'll go but ahead and both... admit I have Sorry. never seen 12 Years a Slave because well, I... I don't know that I've ever been in the the emotional state where I think I could <laughs> handle that movie. <laughs> Which I is know. So... Well, that's that's my thing, dude. Like, I've never seen Schindler's List, and I feel kind of awful about it. But, like, I've never been like, oh, my God, let me sit down and watch Schindler's List. Like, like you really do have to put yourself in the right mindset. And I generally would rather watch a documentary or something. <laughs> you know, I'm in the same boat. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, and it's hard to talk about. I mean, I, I want to be sensitive to the fact that we are two white guys trying to talk about slavery. And I, I know that there are going to be implicit biases and just plain old ignorance that's going to that could come across as, as insensitive. And, and I apologize if that happens and that's not my intent at all. So it's, it, this is the thing that it's hard to talk about. It's uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable subject. And I think that's really important that Tarantino tackled it in this film. And I think he did a great job. Um, but let's talk about the movie, man. Let's, let's talk about, 
Let's talk about Christoph Waltz, because he is my spirit animal in this movie. <laughs> God, he crushes it. Just the... I want to see... some. We need to start putting Christoph Waltz in different roles, I think, uh-huh. but it's hard to get... It's not. I'm not likely to get tired of this cocky, silly, intelligent European <laughs> dogging on Americans. Smarter than everybody. And just a step ahead, and yep. Oh yeah, the he reads Tarantino's writing just so on the nose. Something yep. about I think he is Tarantino's spirit animal because I you know over the course of this we've kind of, I've read a lot about how Tarantino generally pictures people in these roles and then writes mm-hmm. with that tone, mm-hmm. and I think Christoph Waltz and him are just they're drifting. In a giant movie-making <laughs> robot together, yeah, and it's beautiful. Well, it's pretty obvious that even if Tarantino had written part of this script before he met Christoph Waltz, that he altered the he altered the script to fit him. I don't think that he was like, you know, it'd be really interesting if there was this German bounty hunter, and <laughs> uh, like, I don't think that that was the case. I think he probably made. Uh, you know, Inglorious Bastards and was like, I have to work with this guy again and I'd like to put him in a hero role instead of a villain role and see how that works. But yeah, Schultz's character is so incredibly interesting because like, I, I, I kind of feel like Schultz needs to go down as one of the biggest badasses in movie history in some ways. How so? Uh... This guy is as cool under pressure as anybody I've ever seen. <laughs> like, he cannot be rattled. And, yeah, I mean, he he never raises his voice in the entire film. He speaks very calmly, even when he's got a shotgun pointed, you know, three inches away from the back of his skull. Um He's, he's the cool, he's the cool customer, man. He is cool as the other side of the pillow. And he doesn't give a fuck because... Um, I don't know. I don't know why he doesn't give a fuck. He just doesn't give a fuck. Maybe because he's a dentist. And if you were to be a dentist in that time period, you had to not give a fuck about hurting people because that was pre-Novocaine, baby. That was a, that was a rough time for uh, dental hygiene. He reminds but. me a lot of, you're just saying cool, and I just kept thinking mm-hmm. of uh, the detect the private eye in Jackie Brown. I can't yeah, think of his name totally. off the top of my head, but... Max, it's a, I yeah, believe. um, yeah, very similar qualities. Because you know, it's one of those ones where you kind of look back and see, Tar- with the way that Tarantino writes, I, I wonder if at the end of this we could, and maybe Hateful Eight will be a good, uh, one to readdress this. But to look at yeah. characters that are similar to the past, like how calm Harvey Keitel is in (laughs) Reservoir Dogs into uh, Max and Jackie Brown into how calm Bill is through all of the Kill Bills, despite the the tension of all of that plot. Um, And Michael Fassbender in his last moments in Inglorious Bastards is like, Oh yeah. Tarantino can write cool. He knows how to write for (laughs) Joe cool, the character. In a believable way, not in like a cocky way, but in like a, the character truly feels like they truly believe they can talk their way out of something. Oh, yeah. I, the, I mean, the other one that stands out to me huge is Samuel Jackson in Pulp Fiction, 
Oh, like, yeah. Oh, when yeah. he goes, when he walks into the room with the three, you know, 20 year old kids in it, and he knows he's just going to light up the fucking room, and he just is playing with his food before he eats it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he just, and then when he's, you know, talking to Ringo at the, uh, at the diner at the end of the movie, you know, you know, just be cool. Just be cool. Be like Fonzie. What's Fonzie like? He's cool. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just be cool. Yeah. I, 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 I just, Christoph Waltz just like blows my mind in this movie as he did in, in Glorious Bastards. And really the interesting thing about this, I want to go to the forum posts because our good friend, Davey Mack, uh, loyal friend and true, he had a lot of good points on this one. Um, but uh, right here it says, uh, it says, I also find the character of Steven to be really fascinating and a big risk of a character to both write and play. I know it doesn't sit well with a lot of people that Steven ends up being the big bad of the film instead of Candy. I also know a lot of people feel that the film kind of loses its way once Schultz and Candy are gone. And I totally see their point. But I think the last 30 minutes are really necessary for it to truly become Django's movie. And though I do find everything about the escape and revenge to be less dramatic and interesting, uh, or though I do find everything about the escape and revenge to be less dramatic and interesting than everything that came before. Uh, We also had KSA 1001, the radio station man, coming in. (laughs) He said, I'm not (laughs) sure why Schultz wouldn't just leave and not let Candy die or, or not kill Candy, but it was necessary for the bloody finale. And I think there's a couple things here. Um, I do think that this movie is about Schultz for the most part, (laughs) and it does have to make that transition to be about Django, and it does that about two hours into the movie, in my opinion. Um, Uh, I think that that Waltz steals the show, but I don't know that he is written to be the he's the mentor. I mean, from the yeah, from the very start, uh, you know, there's the I've been listening to kind of some of that stuff around star wars you know the hero's tale the the Mm -hmm. oldest myth the joseph campbell stuff um yep you know he Django is receives you know the calling and you hear schultz be like the kid's a natural and then it's him training Django, and then ultimately they enter the dark place Django loses his mentor and then Mm -hmm. you know the adventure is his to continue Right. And conquer. And I think that I agree with KSA that, or where I think KSA is asking, like, why wouldn't Schultz kill Candy? I think we've seen it the whole film that Schultz is probably one of the most altruistic characters that Tarantino's ever written. I think just the, the crime that Candy has committed against humanity, <laughs> because Schultz hasn't, especially in that opening scene where they go into the, town in texas and you know Django's riding on a horse and everybody's just losing it right and schultz could not care less and he serves you know he serves him up a pair of beers like he just always treats Django like just another person right um in light of everybody else actively taking note calling out and treating Django differently absolutely um and i think that schultz just he can't abide the <laughs> the crimes of candy and in the end yeah because you know he talks about the the ta- the story of brunhilde and how every german knows it um you know in every great story the the bad guy cannot be let cannot be allowed to leave 
Absolutely. And so, yeah, I think we should. I, I, I think we should do this. Uh, we should look for this in Hateful Eight because it's happened in both of the previous films. In that a deal is made, and then you know the old, uh, <laughs> the old Darth Vader saying, "I am altering the deal. Pray do not alter it further." <laughs> That's basically what is happening in both of these films because the deal doesn't sit well with us as the audience. Like, um, you know, Tarantino wants the audience to get what they want, right? But what he does is he gives you something that's not what they want. So I don't know. I mean, I feel like part of me was like, you know, just go shake his hand and walk out. You have Broomhilda and then and then uh, and then that's that. But then on the other hand, you know, the deal just doesn't sit well because we have to slay the dragon. We have to, you know, have the legend and and realize the, the ending that needs to happen, which is which is killing the killing the dragon and saving the princess. Um and and it, it allows us to clean that out because I feel like Candy is Schultz's uh, adversary, and I feel like Steven is Django's adversary. Um, so to say that Steven is a big bad of the film, I would just say he's the antagonist for Django, and in the classic sense of the word, you know, he is uh, kind of that, that flip side of what Django is and what Django stands for. Steven stands for everything that Django doesn't stand for. Whereas Schultz is very similarly uh, opposed to Candy in that regard. Well, they so, you know they make a really good they take a moment to point out that while a black slaver is the lowest of the low, next mm-hmm. up is the head house slave. Yeah, exactly. and then we get the introduction to Stephen, who it does you know appear he when he sits with Candy in the the library and they yeah. And he basically reveals the the true intentions of Django and Schultz. He drops a lot of his pretense, a lot of the kind of step and fetch uh, tone that he's mm-hmm. typically been acting in, and he gets serious and and dangerously intelligent in that moment. And I think well, yeah, that's when we see the real Steven. And I think he is, in some ways, the big bad. I cause he's smarter than Candy. In that moment, he knows oh, yeah. the truth. Well, he raised Candy. I mean, he basically—that's the thing about Candy. Candy's an idiot, and I love that. Like throughout the movie, they <laughs> over and over and over again, they talk about what an idiot he is. Like you know, like he doesn't know what panache means. He can't explain it. Um, and you know, right at he, he the beginning to be of Monsieur the film, Candy, but yeah, don't speak but French to speak him. French. Yeah, because it'll embarrass him. Uh, <laughs> it's really funny, and yeah, he's he's a bumbling idiot. And and what Schultz stands for is enlightenment. Like even at the beginning of the movie, when he buys Django and he frees the rest of the slaves, he goes, you know, perhaps you can then uh, go to a more enlightened area of the country. Like Schultz is all about uh, being enlightened and being the. Uh, you know, having actual intelligence. And it's that thing of like, if you're actually intelligent, then you understand how dumb you are. But if you're dumb, then you think you're really, really smart. You think you're the (laughs) smartest guy in the room, you know? That's basically the dichotomy between these two guys. Like, uh, you know, Schultz can quote, uh, uh, can quote uh, Three Musketeers and knows the history of the author and knows the whole story. Whereas, uh, you know, Candy just basically plucks a name out of the book for appearances to make himself seem more cultured and smart. I did not so, know Alexander Dumas was black, by the way. Yeah, that's I know it's movie. really interesting. Yeah, um, 
it's it's I, I just think that these dichotomies between these two characters are really really clear that Schultz Schultz's antagonist is Candy and that's uh Django's antagonist is Steven. Um and so that's why the end of the movie you could say Steven's the big bad but I just think Steven is Steven is Django's and and Candy was Schultz's. Um and you know it's I think it's really interesting and bold that Tarantino has two antagonists and two protagonists in this movie in that way, which I think is cool. And the casting continues to be, I mean, Jamie Foxx just oh, yeah. crushes it. And I saw a really Destroys. cool interview with him talking about trying to get in the mind of a slave and to have that mm-hmm. persona when you're a famous actor who's you know rolling around in a Lexus, and if somebody ever called <laughs> you the N-word, you would get out and just beat the hell out of them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he it's, does a fantastic, especially from the, the start when he's standing in the line and he's just, you know, kind of got that far off look in his eyes and trying not to be noticed to the end where he's looking just yeah. badass when he rides <laughs> bareback uh-huh. with dynamite in his in the saddle up to back to Candyland. Yeah, it's he he does a, he does a, a, a really awesome job. Um, and yeah, you're totally right that prog- the progression that his character goes through throughout the film is so interesting, um, in that at the beginning he is very, uh, subordinate and then he just moves into fuck this shit. I'm going to own it all. I'm owning it. Uh, it made me really happy. It made me really excited. You know, and it's the other thing at the end of this movie, you know they have all the paperwork in place, and uh, Hildy is uh, Hildy is free, and Django is free, and they have the documentation for it. But I do worry about these two trying to get out of Mississippi. But at the same time, it's very much the same thing that was at the end of Kill Bill when you have uh, Beatrix and BB in the car, and you're like, I don't know how this is going to work out for these guys, but it doesn't matter because it's the end of the fucking movie. So just chill out. The story has concluded. <laughs> <laughs> and these characters don't exist after the end credits. So so just be rest on your laurels and, and, and have fun with the riding off into the sunset because it is a fun way to end a movie. Well and the the funny part is is it's uh it reminded me of one of the black exploitation films I saw when I was going through like a grindhouse kick was Sweet mm-hmm. Sweetback's badass song. Yep. And at the end it's been so long I pretty sure he ends up killing a cop and then he like makes a run over the border and then just the text across the screen is basically like this warning that you know at any time he could come back and just you know cause terror basically Uh you know in as revenge um for african americans everywhere and Mm -hmm. i think that this is a similar ending where what happens after the film is to me it's it's kind of a it's a legend not necessarily like a a true story and yeah really it's the the tale where yeah you better look out mississippi mm-hmm. because this at any time this guy could come out of the woodwork <laughs> and return. blow up your house so <laughs> yeah it's really interesting I, I love that take on it that it is a legend i do think that this movie correlates most closely to kill bill in that way because you know, Beatrix is a superhero. Django's basically a superhero as well. He's a guy who's never held a gun, and yet he's like the greatest shot who's ever existed. <laughs> and, uh, he, you know, he has animal husbandry skills that are second to none. And you know, he's uh, 
he's got he's got an affinity that's just kind of natural, and he's he's a natural badass, and he does it um, all with style. <laughs> yeah, he boot. fucking is stylish. He's gonna wear his blue outfit, and <laughs> and he's gonna fucking rock that shit. It is so yeah. shocking how well he pulls off that stupid blue outfit. I know. The giant bow on the... It's not so bad, but the giant bow around the neck and the bows <laughs> around the calves are like, really? <laughs> it's just so awesome, though, because, like, all of the, you know, all of the slave owners in this movie, all the plantation owners are these, like, foppish, like, uh, you know, over-the-top, uh, you know, genteel southern gentlemen, you know, characters who wear silks and uh, and, you know white hats and and you know dressed to the nines and all these appearances and stuff um and they while they're ruthless they're also kind of uh over the top uh you know um fancy pants as well <laughs> and so it's just awesome that when Django decides you know when Django gets the opportunity to 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 choose his own outfit he chooses the fancy pants outfit cuz that's that's what a you know that's what a free man probably represents to him. If this is all he's running into, are these you know uh, over the top plantation owners throughout his life? Like that's what it means to be at the top rung is that you wear the the most outlandish outfit and you wear the the silks and the bows and and uh, walk around like a like a southern gentleman. So I I think that that the 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 decision is motivated on his part, but it's also just downright hilarious, and it's awesome to see him whipping the dude. Uh, oh yeah, when he just lays that into him. Yeah, I like the way you die, boy. That was fucking <laughs> awesome. That was great. Um, yeah, there's a couple, a uh, couple of cool things in here too that I really like. That are I feel like are little winks and nods to the audience. You know, one of the things that we talk about in Tarantinoisms is that he fills his movies with bad people because bad people are interesting, right? But then there's this interesting little exchange between uh, Django and Schultz when Schultz is explaining the bounty hunting business to Django, where he says, the badder they are, the bigger the reward. And I'm like, is is that like literally Tarantino being like, <laughs> you know, the worst, the, the worst people are the most interesting. And if you want a great story, you're going to have to put bad people in it. It's probably my own extrapolation, but I, I do like that because I think it has dual meanings. I think uh, it fits given the, yeah. you know, the long series of what I've, who would you deem out of all of the Tarantino movies we've seen so far to be the biggest villain? The biggest villain? I think it's Marcellus Wallace. Really? Yeah. I would go with Bill. Uh, and yeah, I mean, Bill could kill Marcellus Wallace, but I think Mar- Marcellus Wallace from a empire standpoint is... The most ruthless. Yeah, the most ruthless. The guy who can, you know, grab a phone and... It's not just that he's ruthless, because if you wanted to be the most ruthless, I would say that it's uh, Ordell from Jackie Brown. I think he's the most ruthless character. Well, I think Ving Rhames is in a lot of ways Ordell, but effective. He's effective, and and he has the wherewithal to, to pull off his pull off whatever he wants like Ordell is an idiot and he and he surrounds himself with idiots and so they can't really get anything done Ving Rhames uh, you know Marcellus Wallace he can get whatever he needs done done and he has the ruthlessness and the means to do so I mean also Hitler I mean Hitler's pretty bad too (laughs) (laughs) 
But I don't know. That's just what that's what immediately came to mind was being Rames. Although you got to give a nod, I think, directly to Candy as well. Yes. Oh yeah. Well, did you hear? I was. Gino and Aaron pointed this out in their cast that when he smashes that glass on the table, yeah, that he actually like cut his hand yeah. and they he just actually cut his hand. Kept going, just kept filming yeah. it. So, so that's his real blood on his hand. Yeah. So Leonardo DiCaprio is actually the big bad of all the. Yeah. <laughs> well, because <laughs> he actually slices. He his just hand kept open. going for it, and then he smeared yeah. it all over that gal's face. Gross. Yeah, it's Leonardo DiCaprio has this amazing ability to sound like a twelve-year-old if he needs to. Like, there's this <laughs> scene when you know the scene that when he breaks the glass, he brings in Hildy and he's and he's got her on the table and he's got the hammer raised and he says, "Do we have a deal?" He screams it at the top of his lungs and just com- it comes out like an obstinate child, like screaming, um, and he like loses his accent and everything. <laughs> Like he's he's you know he's he's fully fueled at that point, um, and I think that you know I we didn't even talk about him his performance, but he he kills it as Candy as well, um, you know in some ways I feel like he Candy is Ordell <laughs> in the in the sense that he's an idiot and he surrounds himself with idiots, um, but he has you know the means based on his family bloodline that he's able to uh, to carry out his ruthless acts. Um, you know, un unfettered. So, uh, yeah, Leo completely kills it in this movie too. Just great performances all around for people. Um, I want to take a look at this. Uh, see, I get the IMDb page brought up for this. I want to see what awards this thing won. I think because up for. I thought we didn't care about awards. I know, <laughs> but I, I just find it interesting. <laughs> so yeah, Christoph Waltz won the Oscar for. Uh, for Best Supporting Actor and Quentin Tarantino won uh, for Best Original Screenplay for this movie. Um, and I I was mistaken last time. He actually didn't win Best Original Screenplay for Inglorious Bastards. And that should also tell you how stupid the Oscars are because that movie was <laughs> awesome. Uh, <laughs> but he's he's uh, Quentin Tarantino's won two Oscars. He won uh, best screenwriting both times for Pulp Fiction and for Django Unchained. So, um, so you know, I I, I I just feel like this is a great great effort from Tarantino. Uh, I also feel that his cameo is ridiculous. It should not have happened. Yeah, with the weird accent. This is yeah. The- <laughs> Why well, does he have to be Australian, man? Why did you have to be? Well, you, you even pointed it out at Australian. the earlier in the podcast back when we were starting yeah. and i said something about his terrible acting yeah. um this really is like oh god he's got to stop putting himself in his own movies it takes uh-huh. for movies that are so uh energetic it really takes me out when i see him pop up and i'm like yeah son of a like really why are you, you in here <laughs> I mean, he, apparently he put himself in this film because he was trying to cast other people, but, like, the shooting schedule kept moving around, and so he couldn't get people on set when he needed them to be on set, uh, so he just did it himself. But it's like, you didn't have to make the guy Australian. There's already another Australian guy. Like, <laughs> you could have just let the guy who's actually an Aussie, you know, have the Australian accent. I just thought his accent was so bad and so <laughs> weird. Um 
Although I will say I like QT in in Pulp Fiction. I feel like he's effect- he, that's an effective cameo. For yeah, Quentin he fits Tarantino, that but maybe just role. Leave it at that. Yeah, because he's such a dork. Because you assume that's what he's actually <laughs> like. Yeah. If you put Quentin Tarantino in that situation, that is how yeah. he would respond. Mm-hmm. And not yeah, with an Australian a, accent. I think it's the accent. Australian. He could have done it without the accent. I would have been fine. It's just, I would have been. I probably would have been fine too. Yeah. But he does get blown up, which is kind of. If I it made cool. a movie, I would want to blow myself up in the movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he also, I don't want to dog on him too much, obviously, because, like, we love his movies, but his cameo in Death Proof is also awful. It's just, like, <laughs> there's so many better people that you could put in these roles, man. And, but what, you know, who am I to judge, man? You make a movie, you put yourself in the movie. Who gives a shit? Yeah, when you start making Oscar-winning scripts, yeah. <laughs> then you can judge. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's fair. That is fair. Uh, one of the things I really like, too, I was listening uh, to an interview with Quentin Tarantino, and he was talking about uh, The Hateful Eight, um, and they kind of shot The Hateful Eight and you know, we'll obviously talk about the hateful eight later, but they shot the movie in two different locations. They shot it like in Colorado, and then they shot it on a soundstage in in Los Angeles. And one of the things you really liked about the sh- the set in Colorado is that you could see people's breath. Quintardino is never going to use CGI to make people's breath cold, which makes me think about these guys at the beginning of the movie. Because the breath, the hot breath coming out of them at the very beginning when Django's chained up and they're in Texas and the and the hot breath coming out of the horses and everything, I was just like, Jesus, man, like these guys have to be freezing their asses off because Quentin Tarantino is the type of guy who drops the temperature down to like 30 degrees so that, uh, so that you could see that hot breath. But um, I, I just hope they had some jackets on hand for these guys because they were cold. <laughs> Uh, what did you think of the the comedy scene with Jonah Hill and the uh, and the the buffoons with the hoods on? I think it is one of the funniest scenes in the entire Tarantino <laughs> series up until now. I think mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of what I would take as other like comedic scenes. I would say that the Hugo Stieglitz flashback in Inglorious Bastards was a highlight yeah. scene. Yeah. Um, I uh, Pi May in Kill Bill mm-hmm. is actually yep. pretty funny when he fights her and just slaps her around. Um, I'm trying to think of comedic comedic like it's just solid yeah. comedy. Just that's all that scene is there this for is, like, is just to make comedy. you chuckle. Well, it's, it's, it does a couple of things. I think that it also illustrates the buffoonery of these people. Like there's. There's an idea of I think permeating throughout this movie that like these these slave owners and these white people in the south are uh you know they're obviously ruthless and they're terrible but they're also a bunch of bumbling idiots. <laughs> and I think that it helps to disarm, you know, Quentin Tarantino likes to have this idea that there's always the smartest person in the room. And it's another thing that furthers that character of Schultz as the smartest guy around. Like, you're not going to find a smarter guy for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles, um, which I which I really like. But the, the scene itself is just hilarious. Um, and I love that he got Jonah Hill to be in the movie, <laughs> randomly. <laughs> he likes to sneak uh, that. There's a couple. The the guy that comes up to Django at at Candy's yep. when they're fighting, yep. that's the, the 
what was his name? Franco. His name is, is Nero. Yeah, Franco Nero. Franco Nero played the original yep. Django. That was fun. Yep. Um The guy who plays Butch looks super familiar. I feel like he's always in the background of movies. Butch? Which one's Butch? He was the one that was packing the shotguns. thought his name was Butch. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's see. I'm scrolling um, down the thing. MC Ganey. Yeah. The, there's another one. The guy that played one of the Brittle Brothers. Who's been yeah, in a ton well, of stuff. Like, at this point, Michael Parks, if Michael Tarantino Parks is... comes and says, hey, do you want to do a movie? Like, you just... It doesn't matter. <laughs> you could have a 30 second... 30 seconds on screen and you'll take it, right? Yeah. Cause That's it... interesting, though. Like, James... So, James Remar is the guy who played Butch. Um, and... Oh, that's what I know from. He played Dexter's dad in Dexter. Um, the the TV show. But he actually plays two roles in this movie, just like Michael Parks did in Kill Bill. And, of course, <laughs> plays... Michael Parks does show up in this one, too. Yeah. And in a very similar role. He's, he's not a <laughs> sheriff this time, but he's... Uh, mm-hmm. Because he's he's the guy who plays a sheriff in both Kill Bill and uh, Death Proof, but so he's not a sheriff this time. He's he's one of the he's the third guy in the Tarantino uh, you know, transporter gang um, that's taking Jamie Foxx out to the mines. Uh, but yeah, Michael Park shows up again, which I thought was really cool. Why wouldn't he I have just made never... him the sheriff in the town at the start? I feel like that's the sort of thing <laughs> like Tarantino would just keep putting him as sheriff, just keep using him. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he should have. Uh, that would have been really good. Uh, he also plays Ace Speck, though. So the guy who plays Butch also plays Ace Speck, uh, who's one of the Speck brothers. Um, so maybe he was just on set and they were like, we need one more person. So uh, go do that. Uh, another interesting thing going into the uh, town, which I kind of forgot, is that Amber Tamblyn, who's a fairly recognizable actress, uh, she's in the window. She basically has this tiny cameo where she's like up in the window uh, of the town that they ride into at the very beginning of the film. And then we never see her again. And it made me think that like, oh, was she, did they have a scene with her that they cut out? Or like, why did they have her in the window? Because like I said, she's a fairly well-known actress. But it actually turns out she's the daughter of a son of a gunfighter because her father played this guy the son of a gunfighter in the movie son of a gunfighter which <laughs> came out in 1965 <laughs> so uh and, and he's actually in that scene as well so anyway a lot of cool stuff a lot of cool throwbacks zoe uh, bell shows up too she's the gal she's one of the trackers um the one with the red scarf oh, around her face zoe bell yeah and that i was bugged me yeah. i remembered that from the first time i watched it because uh-huh. knowing quentin tarantino i was like there must be like what is this character like? What's her thing? Like, why the red scar? Like, she's gonna pull it off, and her right. face is gonna just be wrecked or something. And right. This time, I was like, "Oh, it's Zoe Bill." He just wanted to put her in the <laughs> sneak her I, in there real that quick. Character. Yeah, I kind of wish she did something else in the movie because she's so out of place that with that you know that band of mooks who are well. That's really you know, why she's got a scarf smelly. over her face. Is she's just yeah. <laughs> too pretty. Yeah, well, and she probably for the stench as well, man. Those guys cannot smell good. One of, uh, one of them was bathing. <laughs> one, of them was, one of them was in for his monthly bath. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's totally cool, though. I So Zoe Bell, um, just for the listeners who don't know who she is, she played the stunt woman in Death Proof, and she was also uh, 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 Uma Thurman's stunt double in Kill Bill. And so, that's cool. I think she did stunt work for Xena Warrior Princess. 
which I watched well, there a ton you go. of when I was a child. <laughs> yeah, and also like, uh, oh, what's his name? Don um, Johnson. Don Johnson. Don Johnson, man. Don Johnson coming in. He did a great job as the as the precursor to Candy. Uh, once again, like just a guy who's like all about appearances, uh, is ruthless to boot, but you know requires other people to actually carry out that ruthlessness. And you know, gallivants around in in silk suits and uh, and and putting on airs, which I really like. Well, and he nails the when he's having his girl show uh, Django around, and he's trying yeah. to explain to her that middle ground. Yeah, and she's like, "So you want to treat me like treat him like he's white?" No, that's it's just something about the way that he he just nails that. That gentility yeah. that you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, trying to be weird, polite, but polite inside he's a raging racist. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like Minnesota nice, except instead of passive aggressiveness, it's rage. It's raging racism. <laughs> That's what it is. Um, yeah, I, I, I really there's just a lot of great things in this in this movie. Um, I think that I, I think I've covered most of the stuff in my notes. I did I did really like the way that they painted Mississippi as kind of this mythical land. Um, you know, at the beginning of the or after uh, Django and and Schultz team up, Schultz tells the story of Brumhilda and that there's the dragon on the mountain, you know, uh, guarding her. And then we see later that you know Candy's keep smoke blowing smoke out of his nose, and he's the dragon of of Candy Lane Ranch, which I think is really cool. Um, but that scene when it's like after a bountiful win- and winter, uh, they the the two go to Mississippi, and then there's that long M I S S I S S I P P I that scrolls across the screen, and you're like, oh man, we're not in Kansas anymore. Like we have entered the hellfire, we have entered the mountain, uh, and we are here to take over, which I thought was cool. Well, and we get the range in Mississippi too because they come into town, and it's you know, a street of mud, and then we get Candy's, wherever it was he was, when they kind of meet him, like an apartment, mm-hmm. and then out to the plantation. So we kind of see this range of... It was of, the Cleopatra Club. Yeah. That's where they the were. Club. And, um, you know, it's this kind of increasing show of wealth and kind of the gap between, you know... From the street of mud all the way to the plantation mm-hmm. to yeah. the even that long, there was the setup scene when they're setting up for dinner. That was, I mean, it felt like I was watching uh, Downton Abbey in mm-hmm. the like. Yeah. It was all about the presentation and the what it takes to set it up, and I was just it was oddly specific for Tarantino to take that moment to show what all goes into those setups. Yeah. Yeah, and and then we go to the D'Artagnan scene when he gets eaten up by the dogs, which is such a brutal scene. Like I'm trying to think of a more brutal scene in a Quentin Tarantino movie. The one that it, the only one that came to mind is cutting off the ear of the cop in Reservoir Dogs. Like that's, uh, but it's supposed to stick with you, and it's this whole idea that you hear time and time again for filmmakers: show, don't tell; show, don't tell. Not it's not about ex- exposition; it's about exhibition we want to see it right um and this shows that crazy intense ruthlessness of candy and that yeah you know while he's putting on airs and while uh while um 
Leonardo DiCaprio is very charming as a person and as an actor, this guy is going to get what's coming to him. We're going to set up this revenge fantasy by by painting him as the as one of the worst people ever. And it's a scene that, that is so effective because it sticks with you as the viewer. And then later on, you know that you, you see that it's been sticking with Schultz as well. And it's what motivates him to gun down Candy, which is really interesting. Like Tarantino knew that that scene was so impact was going to be so impactful for the audience that it the audience would immediately empathize with Schultz at the end of the movie when when he decides to to take care of business. Well, so. and it makes it more understandable that he is kind of you know it's a suicide mission gunning down Candy. Yeah, but oh, you totally. are kind of you know it's the. It's the guy dying at the end of Independence Day by flying up the alien beam. Like, it's suicide, but uh-huh. for the larger cause, <laughs> you totally understand. You yeah, you can almost no. picture yourself. You'd hope that you would do the same thing if that, was on, if that sort of thing was on the line. You know, the heroic. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember watching it in the theater when, uh, when schultz gunned down candy there was like a gasp in the theater there was like a oh yeah <laughs> like <laughs> you know that's the revenge fantasy that that's in every single one of tarantino's movies that there has to be some kind of vengeance plot associated with a primal with justice it, it's, and it yeah, works it's a primal justice, every man. time it's so yep. satisfying especially because he is. does his cool whip out of the sleeve gun move yeah, totally. Which is, you know, right, we see at the very beginning of the movie. It's it, like, it's just set up so perfectly. It's masterful film writing. It's the type of thing that seems obvious, but is pulled off in such a unique way that you're amazed by it as a viewer. And that's what Tarantino has become over the years. He's been able to hone his craft from entertaining movies to movies that are just kind of masterful, which I think is really awesome it's it's awesome to see a filmmaker of this tarantino so unique man nobody else does movies like he does i mean the only other guy that i think of is wes anderson like wes anderson movies are wes anderson movies. <laughs> like absolutely you know he's gonna go out like if you're an investor and you're gonna invest in a wes anderson movie you know exactly what you're gonna get out of that movie tarantino is similar in that it's the type of guy you're gonna be hands off you're gonna let him do what he wants and he's gonna make an awesome Tarantino movie. I think the only um, distinction it's more than just great dialogue between those two, between Wes Anderson and Tarantino is that Wes Anderson can like, he has gotten weirder and weirder over time yeah. just with large, <laughs> with larger budgets. And uh-huh. so he's able to do um, uh, visual things more and more kind of in this weird way. And I, he, you know, it feels like he's kind of built, he's kind of building up kind of like a Katamari Damacy, like, He's just uh-huh. rolling this ball and he's just picking things up and he just keeps <laughs> going. And every movie is the previous ball and you watch him pick up a few more things. Tarantino yeah. has really, I think, honed. I think he yeah. has – if you go back to kind of – he figured out what he wanted. And then Pulp Fiction, I think, is kind of the apex in his personal style. And now he has mm-hmm. worked himself down to – He's refined it so that now it is yeah. – he's no longer dependent upon the the uniqueness. Now he is, I think, uh, right. leaning more heavily on a mo- on the movies he makes. He's not yeah. on, relying on a trick. He's relying on the, the, the synergy. <laughs> totally. 
It's less style, more substance. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah, he's and, slowly honed his style so that he needs only a little bit of it. Because otherwise, there's plenty of, you know, Pulp Fiction felt like moment to moment his style. Django Unchained yeah. feels like a movie and there are moments of his style just throughout. And Yeah. Yeah, it's it's great. great. I'm so glad that we've been still. able to kind of watch the chronology of it. It's been I know, it's awesome. Because how often do you... you I don't know that I would do this um, of my own because yeah. there's so many other things to watch. Yeah, and you don't and just allowing yourself to sit down and have a have a uh, an academic thought, you know, exp- uh, I'm not being articulate, but whatever. Think about it. Just think about <laughs> think about this stuff like over 8 weeks watching these 8 movies. Like it's it's really I I feel really grateful for the opportunity to do this with you, Levi. I think it's really cool. Um, I want to hit on a couple other things uh, before we go. One thing I love, there's the foreshadowing when Django is talking to Schultz and Schultz is trying to be like, hey, man, don't be such an asshole because you're kind of going over the top of it. Uh, Schultz says, I don't intend to die in Chickasaw County, USA. And then, yeah. And then then, uh, the next scene, he sees D'Artagnan get eaten by the dogs and then he basically resigns himself to die in Chickasaw County, USA, which I think is a cool little piece of foreshadowing. And then the final thing here, I do have a minor quibble with this movie, Levi, and maybe you could talk me down and maybe you agree with me. Okay. But when Schultz is, uh, when when Django carries out his duty to kill the Brittle Brittle Brothers uh, and is freed by Schultz, Schultz then says, hey, man, how about you come and with me for the winter and c- collect bounties and then we'll go get Broomhilda in the spring? And it's just like, to me, I'm like, why would Django accept uh, subjecting Broomhilda to another six months of slavery? Like, why do they have to go for the winter and collect bounties while Broomhilda is sitting in captivity for that period of time, having unspeakable things happen to her? Like, I I just kind of wish that they went straight to, to uh, kind of wish they went straight down to Mississippi. I understand that they need some time to, uh, to, to train and have the training montage and have a little bit more character development between Django and the mentor of Schultz. But for me, I'm like, really, Django, like you just let your wife be a slave for another six months instead of going down and getting her. That, th- that didn't ring very true to me. It's. Kind of like Skyrim, the video game. This is a video game dive for all of our listeners. Uh You're immediately faced with the notion that dragons are about to destroy the world. And then you run off and pick (laughs) every flower between Whiterun and I can't remember the name of any of the other towns (laughs) that are far Uh, away. Um, Yeah. But it's just... I I agree that the timing of it is a little bit odd. Um, yes. But it's not... There are bigger things to quibble about, like Star Wars. Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> like we all got to quibble about that at some point. Yes, we must all quibble. You know, and, and that's, it's the idea, right? It's your suspension of disbelief. So I think that... I think that internet culture has really screwed up movie making or movie viewing in a lot of people's minds because it used to be one person could like a movie and the other person could dislike the movie and that was fine now we all have to create this universal opinion of films that this film is garbage and this film is amazing and 
most of the time these garbage arguments come from, well, it's just full of plot holes, like blah, 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 blah. Every single movie has plot holes. Like, these are all fictional accounts of movies. Even a, even an airtight, beautiful movie like Back to the Future has plot holes in it. <laughs> so you have to be able, you have to be willing to, to look past the plot holes uh, if you're going to, um, you have to, you know, there, there's this weird tipping point of plot holes. And this movie, I think, has a, has a little plot hole, and I think that's the plot hole. But it doesn't di- differentiate, obviously, from my opinion of the movie that it's really good, because I've said that I think that it's Tarantino's best piece of filmmaking, and I and I still stand by that statement, even though it has a little bit of a hole in it. So, you know, to each his own, and uh, and you know, it's a it's a movie, it's a movie. Let it be a movie, guys. That's, yeah, you know, that's what I say to myself. Yeah, there's nothing you can do. It's it's story writing, and I dare yeah. anybody that complains about those kind of potholes, especially something small <laughs> like that, go write a yeah. story and see if you can get go away without having to do just one <laughs> loop-de-loop. Yeah. Just to, so you can keep going, especially when you don't yeah. do outlines, because Tarantino just writes. I think he was writes, saying that he kind of basically writes half the, th- the thing first. And it's a genre film, so he generally knows the direction of the ending. But yeah, after he gets halfway through, then he has to start kind of working out how the characters end the story. Yeah. And, and the way that he, uh, these movies turn out, I believe that that is the way he does it. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I, I'm i really excited for Hateful Eight because apparently there's some word on the street that Hateful Eight was actually started as a piece of Django Unchained. Which makes me think that Hateful Eight probably took place during that win- winter western scene oh. when they were doing their bounty hunting in Colorado. Um, that I think that's where the seed of the idea probably permeates from. So that's I'm I'm excited to to kind of see that. And with that, we got some great news, guys. They expanded the release of Django or of of Hateful Eight, which means that Levi and I are going to be able to go watch it. This weekend, which means that Hateful Eight podcast will be up next weekend. We'll get the forum post posted so that you can live uh, live post about it on the Bald Move forums. That's forums.baldmove.com. And we will be back next week to talk about the Hateful Eight. This also means we're not going to do True Romance. In, yeah. For Although I'm, I, I, wanna, I need to watch those now. Yeah, we'll I just, watch them. Curious. We'll watch them, but we'll, we're going to do Hateful Eight next week, and then we will do a wrap-up Quentin Tarantino podcast. Then we'll take a, a, a little break, and we will allow you, the listener, to help us decide our next director on direct. So until next week, until the Hateful Eight, I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Cut.